Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Results from the West Virginia and Nebraska primary elections are in. Find out who won. The news outlet Al Jazeera says one of its journalists was fatally shot in the West Bank. We hear from both sides on who may be responsible for her death. Is Washington changing its stance on Taiwan? Two sentences were removed from the State Department's website defining U.S.-Taiwan relations. The update has drawn anger from Beijing. West Virginia and Nebraska held their primary elections on Tuesday. Here's a look at who's moving on to November's general election. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has the results. I also want to thank President Donald Trump for his endorsement. Trump endorsed Representative Alex Mooney won West Virginia's 2nd Congressional District Republican primary on Tuesday. Mooney defeated Representative David McKinley with just over 50% of the vote to McKinley's 40%, according to a projection from Decision Desk HQ Tuesday night. The incumbent congressmen had to face each other after West Virginia lost one of its congressional districts in a 2020 reapportionment. Trump called Mooney a proud America First conservative for voting against President Biden's Build Back Better bill and against the creation of a bipartisan January 6th commission. The voters of West Virginia spoke loud and clear tonight. They, they rejected, they rejected President Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi's far-left socialist agenda that's destroying our great nation. In his victory speech, Mooney called West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin arrogant for telling Republicans how to vote, referring to Manchin's endorsement of McKinley. He must see me as a threat because he keeps trying to interfere in my campaigns. The real threat to Manchin and elitists like him are the conservative voters of West Virginia. Barry Wendell beat Angela Dwyer in the Democratic primary for West Virginia's 2nd District. And in the 1st District, incumbent Representative Carol Miller won the Republican primary and Eugene Watson took the Democratic primary. The congressional candidates will face off in November's general election. In Nebraska, Republican State Senator Mike Flood won the 1st Congressional District Republican primary on Tuesday. Flood was appointed to represent the GOP in a special election to replace Republican Jeff Fortenberry, who resigned after being found guilty of three felonies in March. Fortenberry's term runs through January 2023. If Flood loses the special election in June, he will still be on November's general election ballot. And in Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District Republican primary, Representative Don Bacon routed Steve Keel with over 80% of the vote. Trump encouraged supporters at a recent rally to vote against Bacon because he voted for President Biden's Build Back Better infrastructure bill and his past criticism around January 6th. In Nebraska's Republican primary election for governor, Trump endorsed Charles Herbster, who lost to Jim Pillen. Results of the primaries are seen by some as a measure of Trump's influence over the Republican Party ahead of a possible 2024 presidential run. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. A woman allegedly found a box of abandoned mail-in ballots on a sidewalk in Hollywood. She reported it to officials. Now USPS and a county registrar are investigating ahead of an upcoming June election. We hear more from NTD's David Lamb. This large box of mail-in ballots was found sitting out on a public sidewalk in Hollywood on May 7th. The U.S. Postal Service and Los Angeles County Registrar's Office said they are investigating the incident. The Registrar's Office told media outlets on Monday evening, our office was notified over the weekend of a mail tray found containing approximately 104 unopened, outbound vote-by-mail ballots and additional mail pieces. The ballots were discovered by Christina Rapaci, who was walking her dog on Saturday evening in East Hollywood. 
She told Fox 11, I turned the corner and I just saw this box of envelopes and it was a USPS box. I picked some envelopes up and I saw they were mail ballots. She was concerned that if another person found it, they might have thrown them away. This comes ahead of California's statewide election on June 7th. According to the Secretary of State's office, primary election ballots will include candidates for positions such as U.S. Senators, the Governor, the Attorney General, along with other positions. David Lamb, NTD News, California. A new poll suggests that some Americans are concerned that their voting power is being undermined. Here are the details. According to a poll by the Associated Press, NORC Center for Public Affairs Research, about one in three U.S. adults believes an effort is underway to replace U.S.-born Americans with immigrants for electoral gains. When the census is conducted, congressional seats get either added or deducted in an area, depending on the number of people living there. That includes illegal immigrants, temporary workers, and foreign students. The allocation of congressional seats should be based upon the number of eligible citizens, uh, not necessarily counting uh, those who are illegally in the country. Thor Hearn is an expert in national election law and was President Bush's National Election Council in his 2004 presidential re-election campaign. He told NTD there are two more things that should be done to restore America's trust in the elections. Require photo ID with a affirmation of citizenship. That's why we also need a voter roll that is accurate and currently maintained, meaning those who are dead, those who are not eligible to vote, those who are not citizens should not be listed on the voter roll. He added that many won't trust the process in the upcoming midterms if those changes aren't made. A Republican congressman from New York has resigned from the House of Representatives effective immediately. Tom Reed announced he was not running for re-election last March after sexual misconduct allegations were made against him by a former lobbyist. Reed made a statement before leaving the House floor Tuesday. While I am proud that we put people before politics, there's much more to do. I'm leaving to continue that work and hope to have a greater impact on our country. I want to thank my family, who without their love and support, I am nothing. I also thank the people who have worked for us and helped so many. I am grateful. My most profound appreciation is for the people of Western New York. Reed's office confirmed in a news release to reporters that he will be joining the Washington, D.C.-based lobbying firm Prime Policy Group. Reed is one of 18 House Republicans who will not be contesting their seats in this year's midterm elections. So far, 32 House Democrats have said they will not be seeking re-election. Renewing his pledge to fight inflation, President Biden on Tuesday sharpened his midterm message and takes on what he calls the ultra-mega agenda. But Republicans are quick to fire back. And today's Iris Tao has more. Uh, I want every American to know that I'm taking inflation uh, very seriously. President Biden is renewing his pledge to fight inflation. This as gas prices hit a fresh all-time high of $4.37 a gallon, according to a Tuesday report by AAA. And the president is blaming two things. It is a once-in-a-century pandemic, a second cause, Mr. Putin's war in Ukraine. And while touting his own plan, Biden is sharpening his attack on Republican plans, which he calls... It's the ultra-mega agenda their extreme agenda. Look at their agenda. He's accusing Republican proposals, in particular one by Senator Rick Scott, of trying to raise taxes on working families. Americans have a choice right now. 
between two paths, reflecting two very different sets of values. And that surely does not only refer to economic policies. Here's the White House on Biden's ultra-mega reference today. And it's also the obsession with culture wars and wars against Mickey Mouse and banning books. President thinks that's extreme. They want. And so to him, adding a little ultra to it, give it a little extra pop. Republicans, meanwhile, are quick to fire back. Democrats' policies have unleashed the worst inflation in more than 40 years. And Senator Scott calls Biden's comments lies, releasing a statement saying the most effective thing Joe Biden can do to solve the inflation crisis he created is resign. Meanwhile, as part of his plan to ease inflation, Biden says he's weighing cuts to tariffs on China. Will you drop former President Trump's China tariffs? We're discussing that right now. And we are going to see the latest inflation numbers as soon as Wednesday morning when the Labor Department releases the Consumer Price Index, or CPI, for April. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Just as Americans gear up for summer road trips, the price of oil remains stubbornly high, pushing prices at the gas pump to painful heights. AAA says the average price for regular gas in the U.S. is $4.40 a gallon. That's especially hard on people who drive for a living. The high price of oil is the main cause of the biting gasoline prices. It was uh, $6.39 and it's cost me $75.45. That's a lot of money. It's almost 100 bucks for a little van like this. Yeah, it's ridiculous. But we're stuck with the prices. It's, oh my God, it's too expensive. Too much, too much money. It's ridiculous, it's crazy. I mean, for guys like me who, like, pretty much my business is all about driving. I work all over the place. So, yeah, got to be filling up my tank every day. Yep, but what can you do? A barrel of the U.S. benchmark crude has been selling for around $100, but it was about $64 back in August. Oil prices worldwide have been high in recent months, mainly because many buyers are refusing to purchase Russian oil after its invasion of Ukraine. Coming up, a judge acquits celebrity chef Mario Batali of indecent assault charges. However, he had strong words about the embattled chef's public behavior. Afghans evacuated from their homeland face difficulty in adjusting to life in the United States. They worry for their family back home and their legal status in the U.S. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. Michigan's Attorney General announced her support for a change in a Trump-era federal policy. The policy makes it harder for immigrants on welfare to obtain permanent residency in the United States. This is happening as a major increase in illegal immigration is expected at the southern border. Dana Nessel and 20 other state attorneys general signed a letter to the Secretary of Homeland Security. They're urging that the Trump administration rule be modified. The letter says that the policy causes immigrants to decline public welfare benefits. They say this resulted in a nationwide decrease of about 260,000 enrollees in child Medicaid and other services. The attorneys general contend that public health in the United States has suffered as a result. They say that any monetary savings have been more than offset by other costs. Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey says he backs Tesla CEO Elon Musk's plan to reinstate former President Donald Trump's Twitter account. He called the move to ban Trump a business decision and a failure. 
Musk suggested Tuesday he would overturn Trump's suspension from Twitter if his takeover bid for the social media platform ends in success. Twitter banned Trump from the platform following the January 6th Capitol breach, claiming his posts violated a glorification of violence policy. Speaking at an event hosted by the Financial Times, Musk addressed Trump's Twitter ban. He said he thinks it was a morally bad decision and foolish in the extreme. Dorsey backed those remarks in a series of posts on Twitter. He said the decision to permanently suspend Trump from the platform was a mistake. Dorsey said in a follow-up post that banning Trump was a misguided business decision. Recaptured fugitive Casey White was brought back to Alabama late Tuesday for his first court appearance. That's after being captured in Evansville, Indiana. At his arraignment, the judge told him he will be charged with escape in the first degree. That's in addition to capital murder charges he was already facing in the death of Connie Ridgway. After the hearing, White left the courthouse to be transferred to the William E. Donaldson Correctional Facility in Bessemer, Alabama. Casey wasn't worth it. Casey doesn't bother you that making death. Who's the mastermind behind your estate? How much thought did you put into this? Casey, did you think you were going to get away? Where do you think you're going tonight? Casey White was reportedly heavily armed when he was arrested on Monday following an 11-day manhunt. According to police, he told authorities that he had planned to engage in a shootout with the law enforcement. The 38-year-old was broken out of prison by former corrections officer Vicki White last month. The search ended with a crash in Indiana. Casey and Vicki are not related, but officials believe they had a romantic relationship. Authorities say Vicki suffered an apparently self-inflicted gunshot wound. She was taken to a hospital where she later died. A Boston judge has acquitted celebrity chef Mario Batali of indecent assault charges. He determined that his accuser had significant credibility issues, but the judge also gave Batali a dressing down for his behavior in public. I'm going to find the defendant not guilty to the charge of indecent assault and battery. Celebrity chef Mario Batali was acquitted on Tuesday of indecently assaulting a woman at a Boston bar in 2017 while posing with her for fan selfie photos. 32-year-old Natalie Tini brought charges against Batali in 2019. In the non-jury trial, she testified that he groped her and forcibly kissed her while drunkenly posing for selfies with her. But Boston Municipal Court Judge James Stanton concluded Teeny had, quote, significant credibility issues, which supported the defense team's claim that her motive was financial gain. However, he had some words of advice for the 61-year-old chef, too. It's an understatement to say that, uh, that Mr. Batali did not cover himself in glory on the night in question. His conduct and his appearance and his demeanor were not befitting of a public person of his stature at that time. It is a lesson for all of those people in public or celebrity positions. If convicted, Batali could have faced up to two and a half years in jail and registration as a sex offender. Several women had made similar claims against him to the media, which led to Batali being fired from the talk show The Chew. He later cut ties with restaurants, including New York's Babo and Del Posto, that he partly owned. He's denied allegations of sexual assault, but apologized for deeply inappropriate behavior. Mike Tyson will not face criminal charges over an incident on a plane last month. A video appears to show him hitting another passenger. 
the San Mateo County, California DA will not file misdemeanor battery charges against Tyson. He says his decision is based on the circumstances surrounding the confrontation. Those include the conduct of the alleged victim leading up to the incident. The DA also says both men involved ask that charges not be filed. The alleged victim is Melvin Townsend. He denies throwing a water bottle at the former world heavyweight champion boxer. Attorneys for Tyson praised the district attorney's decision in a statement on Tuesday. They thanked law enforcement for careful, diligent, and professional work. Oscar-nominated actor James Cromwell superglued himself to the counter of a Starbucks. That was in New York City on Tuesday. He did so to protest the chain's policy of charging extra for plant-based milk. People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, or PETA, live-streamed the protest. The video shows Cromwell and other activists sitting on the counter and reading a statement condemning Starbucks' upcharge on vegan milk options. Cromwell said it's discriminatory against those with lactose intolerance and harmful to the environment. He accused the coffee chain of, quote, raking in huge profits while customers, animals, and the environment suffer. Police eventually responded to the scene and told Cromwell and his fellow protesters to vacate the property. No word on whether the activists will face any charges. PETA has been campaigning against Starbucks' vegan milk surcharge for years. More than 76,000 Afghan refugees have arrived in the U.S. This has been a historic evacuation that marks the end of America's longest war. As newcomers navigate their new life, they're also struggling with new challenges. Arafat Safi, a former senior official in Afghanistan's Foreign Affairs Ministry, managed to flee to the U.S. with his family. But many of his relatives remain in Afghanistan. There, an economic crisis has led to widespread hunger in a growing Taliban crackdown. We, we are here, we feel safe, we are working, we are enjoying, we have health services, but we are worried for our family, how they would manage their food. It's hard to get money to Afghanistan uh, and, and um, how they would bear their expenses, how their life would be. It's, it's always um, a great worry for anyone who is here. Safi is now working as a Pashto English interpreter and delivering packages for Amazon. He has a master's degree from the UK, so he hopes to find a better job. His mother says the family was grateful for the help they received. I was surprised to see Americans' respect and kindness toward all Afghans. I found life and humanity here. It makes me feel that I was not alive back in Afghanistan. Now I'm living a new life here with my family members. Like Safi, most Afghan refugees are still struggling to gain a foothold in the new land. As government and resettlement agency assistance runs out, they are facing difficulties with housing and living expenses. It's difficult. Um, for some, they're still dealing with the trauma of family that remains in Afghanistan and in harm's way. Um, for others, they're enrolling their kids in uh, public schools. But for the kids, they experience the trauma that any child would of uprooting in the middle of a war and coming to a completely new life here. Most Afghans staying in the U.S. are on a two-year temporary status known as humanitarian parole. To remain here, they need to apply for asylum, which can be both time-consuming and costly. Or they can stay with a special immigrant visa, or SIV. It offers permanent residency to people who work for the U.S. government and their immediate family members. According to the Department of Homeland Security, about half of Afghan refugees may eventually qualify for the SIV program. So they are facing a ticking time bomb of what happens if they don't get SIV or asylum status. Do they get deported back to Afghanistan and into harm's way? 
The Afghanistan Adjustment Act in Congress could be a solution. It would allow evacuees to apply for permanent residency after one year in the country. President Biden also recently endorsed including the act in the upcoming Ukraine aid bill. National Park Service officials said Tuesday that two beach houses fell into the waves along North Carolina's coast. The unoccupied homes were located on Ocean Drive in the Outer Banks community of Rodanthe. The Park Service confirmed both collapses and has closed off the areas around the houses. Officials from the Cape Hatteras National Seashore said they will be working closely with the homeowner to coordinate cleanup activities. This is the third time this year a home has fallen into the surf. North Carolina's coast is almost entirely made up of narrow, low-lying barrier islands. Hatteras Island is part of what's known as the Outer Banks. Hundreds of pricey vacation homes have been built there. However, experts say they probably should not have been. The islands are particularly vulnerable to storm surges and being washed over from both sides. Still to come, an ex-Kremlin mercenary says Russia's invasion of Ukraine is doomed to fail. He says that's because the military is not up to the job. How is the war in Ukraine affecting Beijing's ambitions toward Taiwan in the short term and the long term? And what are the impacts of U.S. intelligence sharing with Ukraine? Stay tuned for analysis on these questions after this short break. Reporter from media company Al Jazeera was fatally shot in the head in the West Bank Wednesday morning local time. Her name is Shireen Abu Akla. The outlet is accusing the Israeli Defense Forces, or IDF, of shooting her during their raid of a refugee camp in the area. But the Israeli Prime Minister says she may have been killed by Palestinian gunfire. One of her colleagues blames the IDF for her death. The occupation is murderous and criminal. They shot us for no reason. We, a group of journalists, were there wearing our full press uniform in addition to the helmets with the word press written in large letters as big as the whole world. We were obvious. We made sure to walk right in front of the army patrols so that they can see us and they saw us. After we went to a road where there were no armed people, no civilians, and there were no shooting and no incidents there, we were shocked by the shooting. The reporter was rushed to the hospital in critical condition. She was later pronounced dead. According to Al Jazeera, that's the report the Palestinian Health Authority gave. A journalist and eyewitness shares his account of what happened. He's referring to the Israeli army. What happened was we were waiting for our colleagues to enter the refugee camp at the point where the Israeli army was present. We chose a point that did not have any confrontations between the youth and the militants. We got to a point where we waited for Shireen to put on all her safety gear. She then reached us and we moved a few meters. We exposed ourselves to the army and the passers-by that we are press TV. We arrived and within seconds there was the first shot. I told them we are being targeted, we are being shot at. I turned and found Shireen on the ground. I found Shada shielding herself by a tree and screaming. A second journalist is in serious but stable condition after being shot in the back. That's according to the Jerusalem Post. He's a Palestinian journalist who works for the Quds newspaper. The Israeli Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett, said the Palestinians may be to blame for the female reporter's death. And he said the Palestinian Authority rejected an offer by the Israelis to conduct a joint autopsy. 
Bennett said in a statement, According to the information we've gathered, it appears likely that armed Palestinians who were indiscriminately firing at the time were responsible for the unfortunate death of the journalist. The IDF said they were conducting counterterrorism operations at the refugee camp. They also said tens of Palestinians opened fire on them and that terrorists hurled explosives at them. On the other hand, the second journalist who was shot said there were no resistance fighters near them. The House of Representatives voted to deliver $40 billion in aid to Ukraine. The bill increases presidential drawdown authority funding from $5 billion to $11 billion. That gives the administration the ability to send U.S. military equipment and weapons to Ukraine. The measure also includes $6 billion for other weapons, training, and intelligence support. $900 million will go toward refugee assistance, and $54 million will be used for public health and medical support. The bill still needs to be passed by the Senate and signed by President Biden. The Russian military has never been adequately prepared to fight for real. That's according to a former Russian mercenary who turned down an invitation to fight in Ukraine. Here's more on the story. Marat Gabadulin is an ex-fighter for the Kremlin-linked Wagner Group. He says the Russian military's failure to seize the Ukrainian capital was inevitable because in the preceding years they had never directly faced a powerful enemy. They were caught completely by surprise that the Ukrainian army resisted so fiercely. And another complete surprise was that they faced an actual army. Gabadulin took part in Wagner Group missions on the Kremlin's behalf in Syria and in a previous conflict in Ukraine. He quit the Wagner Group in 2019 and decided to go public about his experience inside the secretive private military company. Several months prior to the Russian invasion, he received a call from a recruiter who invited him to go back as a mercenary in Ukraine. He refused, in part also because he knew Russian forces were not up to the job. The military forces, when it was needed to learn how to fight, did not learn how to fight for real. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov denies any knowledge of Gabadulin and his claims. The Russian Defense Ministry did not respond to a request for comment. Gabadulin is part of a small but growing group of people in Russia with security backgrounds who previously supported President Putin's foreign incursions, but now say the way the war is being conducted is incompetent. He took part in some of the bloodiest Syrian clashes. Wagner Group fighters have been accused by rights groups and the Ukrainian government of committing war crimes in Syria and eastern Ukraine from 2014 onwards. Gabadulin said he was never involved in such abuses. Avril Haines, the director of national intelligence, spoke to Congress on Tuesday. She said Moscow's war in Ukraine is likely to become more unpredictable and escalatory in the coming months. Our next guest is a 15-year Army veteran with over 20 years' experience in intelligence analysis. He analyzes some of the impact of U.S. intelligence sharing with Ukraine. Please welcome Kervin Oquan, who is the owner of private intelligence company Oquan Analytics. Thank you for joining us, sir. Kervin. Thank you for having me on. Now, let's start with CIA Director William Burns. He said over the weekend that China is watching Russia's invasion of Ukraine very closely and that it's affecting Beijing's calculations over Taiwan. Do you think that the Chinese Communist Party is going to change its ambitions based on this fierce resistance that Ukraine has given? Yeah, so short term, yes. The answer to that is yes, because uh, China's been in discussions with Russia since before the Olympics. Um, this is how we saw that Putin was waiting for the Olympics to end to invade, to actually invade Ukraine. Um, he sat down with President Xi uh, in Beijing. They had conversations. 
there are there's information that he actually told Xi he was going to invade and to just wait until the invasion for them to do anything. So that's the first part. And so why I say short term is that had Russia gone in to Ukraine with, with no opposition and taken Kiev within a matter of weeks, you would already see China in Taiwan trying to annex that, uh, trying to annex Taiwan and bring it back into China, which they already consider a part of China anyway. But long term, what this is going to do is it allows Beijing to understand what a uh, full scale invasion of Taiwan could look like because Taiwan now has uh, U.S. munitions, they have the uh, U.S. Hel US uh, Apache helicopters, so they have the ability to defend themselves. What China is hoping is that all these countries continue to stay out of Ukraine, and it gives them a path into Taiwan to go without anybody from the U.S., the U.K., any of the Western forces uh, putting up a fight against Beijing. Now, the Biden administration insists that it will not share intelligence with Ukraine on specifically targeting Russian leaders. Do you think that this has gone too far in the eyes of Russian President Vladimir Putin? Oh, it's, it's definitely gone too far. Now, is, is it going to be a red line now? Uh, no, but we all know Putin looks into the future and changes his red lines. So when he is ready to, let's say, uh, move on into attacking Poland, a NATO partner, he is going to use that intelligence sharing that the U.S. and the U.K. and Western uh, intelligence agencies uh, allowed the, the Ukraine to have access to. He's going to use that as a red line to justify his invasion into Poland. And do you expect that this will happen, given that the war in Ukraine has already passed 70 days? Uh, yeah, so the way that I have seen it, uh, seen it played out in the last couple months, is that you've got Ukraine, they put up a fight that... Uh, Putin and the military didn't expect. And so now they're trying to, uh, after those, those major losses, especially in Kiev, they are trying to formulate wins. So that's why they're on that eastern border of Ukraine, trying to, uh, you know, trying to annex uh, Luhansk, Donetsk, uh, Odessa. Once they get to that point, uh, my thought is the next move is going to be into Moldova. Now, Moldova is not a NATO country. It's a smaller country. It has a smaller military. And it could be a uh, what could be seen as a quick win for Moscow and uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin. Well, Kervin Okwan, owner of Okwan Analytics, thank you so much for your analysis on this. Thank you for having me. The war in Ukraine has affected the supply chain, leading to problems ranging from the price of wheat increasing dramatically to disruptions to the shipping industry. Our next guest from the distribution industry sheds light on how much of an impact the war is having compared to other challenges and how much the war is impacting U.S. businesses. Now we have the pleasure of speaking with Helgi Lija, who is the Senior Director of Distribution Performance Solutions. Thank you for coming on the show, Helgi. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, we look at the war in Ukraine. It's contributed to rising costs of commodities, everything from aluminum to palm oil. Now, and it's also increased the cost of energy. So can you explain the actions of governments and how they've contributed to this? Yeah, interestingly enough, uh, when we think about the global supply chain disruption, there were probably six key factors that led to what we now know as the, as the supply chain disruption from the last two years. Uh, one of those factors, of course, was government. A uh, second factor was demand, because demand did ebb and flow and increase and drop based on some of the decisions. 
Uh, obviously, COVID-19 was kind of the fuel to the flame. Uh, a lot of supply chains also focused on lean distribution. And what that does, it drives higher margins by carrying lower inventories. And this disruption really created a bunch of cracks in that type of thinking. Um, and then we had a lot of other crazy things, uh, labor challenges across the globe. Um, and then what I call kind of characterized as the other, which is uh, the CCP had a 100-year anniversary last July. Um, there's been a lot of unique things from a weather perspective. The Suez Canal was closed for seven days with Evergreen. Uh, so a lot of those things are interdependent. Um, if they happen, you know, if one of those six happened, we'd be fine. But the fact that all six happened uh, really led to the initial disruption. And governments, in my professional opinion, were the number one cause. Uh, you know, there were decisions made for health, safety, um, uh, political, geopolitical reasons. But when we think about the supply chain as a whole, it's been dramatically impacted and somewhat devastated by some of these actions. And now we yeah. have supply chain disruptions from the war in Ukraine. Which areas are most resilient and which areas are hit hardest by this? Well, I think, I think that's, that's the, uh, the challenge. So I've talked with a number of U.S.-based distributors, and I've asked them point blank. I said, has the Russian invasion of Ukraine impacted you? Uh, basically, 95% said, no, not yet. And the reason being is Ukraine and Russia are very, very minor direct trading partners with the U.S. They are, however, major importers and exporters with a lot of European countries and, of course, Asian countries. And those are the countries that are using their raw materials uh, to then manufacture finished goods that we do distribute. Uh, so I, I think the impact will be felt even greater in the U.S. Um, and as we talked earlier, the monetary supply, uh, you know, the U.S. government has been printing money like crazy. The European central banks are doing the same. Um, and so that obviously directly impacts inflation. And I think supply and demand impacts it a lot. Um, I'll share with you an interesting story. Freytos Baltic Index tracks container costs across the globe. And since 2019, they've gone up between 7x to 10x. Think about that. That's 10 times what you used to pay for a container from China to Los Angeles, let's say, is now 10 times more expensive than it was just three years ago. Uh, so obviously that impacts uh, the cost of logistics and supply chain. Uh, the cost of fuel going up, of course, impacts the supply chain because all those costs incurred a higher cost of goods. And of course, that then impacts the higher inflation for all of us as consumers. Al Galija, Senior Director at Distribution Performance Solutions, thank you so much for your time. <laughs> thank you. Russian officials in the Siberian Kurgan region said today that fire and rescue teams have saved over 1,500 residential buildings from wildfires. The fires have raged for days and are fueled by strong winds. Emergency workers have been tackling blazes with water bombing planes from the sky and water tankers on the ground. That's as the fire was engulfing villages and large areas of forest. Blazes in the Siberian Irkutsk region led to the death of two people recently. High winds and dry weather hampered efforts to extinguish the fires. Russian President Vladimir Putin told regional officials on Tuesday to deal with forest fires. He said there could be no repeat of last year's fire season, the biggest on record. Nearly 50 million acres of forest were destroyed by blazes. An update from the U.S. Department of State is drawing anger from Beijing. Is it just a simple change to its website, or does it signal a shift in U.S.-Taiwan relations? Here's more. 
The Chinese Communist Party is lashing out at the U.S. That's after Washington updated the description of its relationship with Taiwan. This kind of political manipulation on the Taiwan issue, an attempt to change the status quo in the Taiwan Strait, will surely stir up a fire that burns the United States. Zhao is referring to an update on the State Department's website. The department recently changed its description of U.S.-Taiwan relations. Two missing sentences are catching people's attention. The earlier version makes two statements. One is, the United States recognized the government of the People's Republic of China as the sole legal government of China, acknowledging the Chinese position that there is but one China and Taiwan is part of China. The other states that the United States does not support Taiwan independence. Both of those sentences are gone following the update. And even though both the old and new statements say the U.S. encourages the peaceful solution of cross-strait differences, the new version adds on to that idea, noting that those peaceful solutions should be consistent with the wishes and best interests of the people on Taiwan. The news comes as the West watches Beijing's action toward Taiwan closely. Concerns have been rising that the Chinese regime may invade Taiwan, using the Ukraine war as an example. The Chinese regime has made it clear to the U.S. that Taiwan is its most sensitive issue when it comes to Beijing's relationship with Washington. And the U.S. has been walking a fine line. Here's the background. Beijing considers Taiwan part of its territory and has threatened to take the island back by force if necessary. That's despite Taiwan having never been ruled by the Chinese regime and having its own democratically elected leaders, constitution and military. The U.S. doesn't have a formal diplomatic relations with Taiwan. But by law, the U.S. has to sell Taiwan arms so that it can defend itself from a possible Chinese invasion. And Taiwan is critical to U.S. safety. The island sits on a sensitive location. It's on a line of defense stretching from Japan to Malaysia, known as the first island chain. It prevents the Chinese regime from launching submarine-based missile attacks against the U.S. The U.S. also relies on Taiwan for its most advanced semiconductors, or microchips. These tiny devices are the brains of modern electronics, from cars to computers and iPhones to military equipment. Commenting on the description update, the State Department told Voice of America that there's no change in its one-China policy. It also said the U.S. remains committed to Taiwan and urges Beijing to stop pressuring the island. Taiwan says the island will continue to deepen its relations with the U.S. and strengthen its self-defense capabilities. Thousands of visitors were seen flocking to the Blue House on Tuesday. South Korea's new president, Yoon Suk-yeol, opened it to the public on his inauguration day and relocated to a new office. The Blue House is the former presidential compound in Seoul. It was opened to the public for the first time in 74 years. Yoon calls the office a symbol of absolute power. He said it would now be used as a public park and cultural space. He relocated the presidential office to a former defense ministry building in the central district of Yongsan. His predecessor, Moon Jae-in, criticized the move as rushed and a national security risk. People living nearby say they have mixed feelings about the move. 
I feel grateful to President Yoon Suk-yul as he returned the Blue House to the public, which was closed for the past 74 years. I'm deeply moved as I'm able to come back here and look around. I don't know what to say. I'm so touched. I'm worried about possible protests around here, but I think it is positive to live closer to the president, as the public security situation will get better. It is important to keep his pledge on the Blue House, but so many people are going through difficult times. He may say they are moving the office at a small cost, but I personally think it costs a lot of money. I just wonder if he could help those who need support with that money. On his first day in the top job, Yoon held a meeting with aides and appointed seven cabinet nominees who had passed their confirmation hearings, including finance and defense ministers. He also met with officials from various countries, including the U.S., China, and Japan. Still to come, the ex-president of Honduras pleads not guilty to drug charges in a U.S. court. People protesting against the former leader were on site. His lawyer says he's not being treated fairly in jail. A prosecutor from Paraguay was killed on his honeymoon. He was known for his work on high-profile drug and money laundering cases. U.S. officials will aid the investigation. Find out more right here on NTD News. Former Honduran President Juan Hernandez pleaded not guilty to U.S. drug and weapons charges. He was in court with chains around his ankles. He's in Manhattan federal court while protests against him take place outside. U.S. prosecutors accuse Hernandez of receiving millions of dollars from drug traffickers in exchange for protection from arrest while he was president. They say he used the money to enrich himself and finance his political campaigns. The former president's lawyer complained of prisoner of war conditions for his client in jail. He also says he cannot easily meet with Hernandez. He says Hernandez is being held in isolation and is not allowed to call his family. Hernandez was extradited from the Central American country last month. He entered the plea of not guilty to three criminal counts. He has in the past denied drug trafficking allegations. He portrays himself as a fierce opponent of drug cartels and accuses traffickers of smearing him to get revenge and lighten their sentences. Three journalists have been killed in Mexico over the past week, according to government officials. Two were killed Monday in the Mexican state of Veracruz. That's according to the state's prosecutor's office, which said it had launched an investigation into the killings. Veracruz prosecutor's office said on Twitter two people were killed in the southern Mexican town on Monday. Those are Alvaraz News website director Yesenia Falcone and reporter Sheila Oliveira. It added that they were pursuing all lines of investigation, including the victim's journalistic activities, to determine the motive for the killings. This comes after another journalist was killed Thursday in the state of Sinaloa. He was a columnist and founder of a news portal. It's unknown whether his killing was linked to his professional activities. The latest deaths bring the number of journalists killed in Mexico in 2022 to at least nine, according to a CNN tally. Marcelo Picci, a Paraguayan prosecutor known for his work in fighting organized crime, was killed on the Colombian tourist island of Beru on Tuesday. That's according to authorities from both countries. 
Pichi and his wife, Paraguayan journalist Claudia Aguilera, were on their honeymoon at a resort near a Caribbean city. They had announced Aguilera's pregnancy on Instagram on Tuesday. Aguilera told Paraguayan media the couple were approached by two men on a private beach connected to their hotel before her husband was shot. She added that he had not received threats. Pichi was known for his work on high-profile anti-money laundering and anti-drug cases. The investigation into the murder of a regional governor's daughter last year and the case against Brazilian footballer Ronaldinho, who was arrested trying to enter Paraguay with an adulterated Paraguayan passport in 2020. A delegation of Paraguayan police will arrive shortly to join the investigation. That's according to what Colombia's national police chief said. He said officials from the United States will also aid the investigation. Still to come, cavers from around the world travel to a remote location in Vietnam to explore one of the largest caves in the world. Experts believe it could connect to another cave system. Find out more in just a minute here on NTD News. New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern announces an earlier date for the country's border reopening. She says cruise ships will also be welcomed back to local ports on the same day. That is why today I can announce a package to speed up our economic recovery while setting us up to address long-term challenges. First, today I can announce that New Zealand fully reopens to the world by July 31, completing our reconnecting work two months ahead of schedule. The end of July opening of the border is two months earlier than the previous time frame. It means visitors who need visas will now be able to come to New Zealand. Ardern says that opening the borders will help to relieve urgent skill shortages, open up tourism, and put immigration rules on more secure footing. New Zealand had some of the toughest curbs in the world during the pandemic and only recently started to ease the unpopular measures. This in hopes of boosting tourism and easing labor shortages. Cavers from around the world travel to a remote location in Vietnam to explore one of the largest caves in the world. It's nearly six miles long, with the ceiling measuring up to 650 feet in some parts. But experts believe it could even be bigger, with sections left unexplored. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Nestled deep in the remote jungle in central Vietnam, Son Dong Cave was hidden from the outside world for years. The cave was formed some 2.3 million years ago when a river flowed through the fault lines of the limestone and eroded away the rock. It's not that long regarding caves all over the world, but the size of it, the volume of it, makes it the largest cave in the world. Um, most of the passages we have explored because we've been exploring here since 2009. So all the small passage on the side we have explored. The steep terrain, the large volume of rainfall, and the quality of limestone in the region were the perfect conditions needed for the large cave to form. The reason why the cave is so big and the caves are so big in Quang Bin is the quality of the limestone. This is the oldest rocks in Southeast Asia, 450 million year old, and it's really pure 
good quality limestone. Son Dong has been recognized as the world's largest single cave passage by the Guinness Book of World Records, but Limbert believes it connects to another cave system, which would mean that Son Dong is even longer and bigger. Only last year we had um, some divers, the world's best divers that came over, the same people who rescued the Thai children, good friends of our team. Um, we invited them over and they dived the river to try and connect it with another cave. Um, it was an incredibly deep dive and extremely technically difficult. San Dong has been open for caving expeditions since 2013. Expeditions cost around $3,000 per person. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And now let's turn to health. Radiation can help and hinder people's health, and it can have the same effect on our pets and other animals. Here's Gina Marie who brings us Strong Mind and Body. Electromagnetic field radiation, EMF, is the electromagnetic energy that emits from all electronic devices. This includes cell phones, laptops, and tablets. We've heard about the harmful effects EMFs can have on the human body, but did you know it can also affect your pets? Here are some tips on how to mitigate their harmful effects. Reducing exposure in your home. Removing devices in your home that you don't use often is a good first step. If you can't just remove them, simply unplugging them when not in use is a great way to minimize their exposure. Creating an EMF free space outdoors. The farther away your pet is from an EMF source, the less exposed they are to its power. Keeping things like your Wi-Fi router in a room away from your living space or away from your pet's napping place is key. If you have a pet that likes the outdoors, try spending time with them in natural environments like parks and nature trails. Aim for a place that isn't densely populated with people spending time on their phones or laptops. Another tip is to strengthen their body through a healthy diet and lifestyle. This can help to prevent certain effects that may come from EMFs. Ensure their diet is natural and balanced, free from harsh chemicals, preservatives and additives. If you want to go all the way, then consider a Defender Shield EMF Radiation Protection Pet Vest. These work well if your dog won't leave your side while you're watching TV or working at your home office. The Defender Shield Pet Vest can block up to 99% of wireless EMF radiation up to 10 GHz. Similar to children, your pet's bodies are much smaller and therefore more easily absorb the EMF frequencies around them. Taking the necessary precautions will mitigate the risk associated with modern technology. A rare diamond and ruby ring is still without a buyer. It was slated to go for $8 million at auction on Monday in Geneva. Sotheby's estimated the ring would sell at between $7.5 million and $9.6 million. The stone is D-color, the highest possible color grading for white diamonds, and it's part of the only 2% type 2A diamonds in the world. Sotheby's also presented a colorful Oscar Heyman & Brothers gem set and diamond birds in flight bracelet from 1927. That was decorated with tropical birds and floral sprigs and sold for $1.4 million, twice its estimated price. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.